Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Some fucking planets are right next to each other, I guess. Right outside your window. It's Cosmo's moon. <laughs> it is Cosmo's moon. <laughs> oh, that's next week. Next week, we're doing Moonstruck. Okay, so two questions before we get started. What is Why Are Dads or... What is Why Are Dads about, Sarah? Alex, I just wish you were better prepared and didn't keep having to get me to remind you what we're doing <laughs> on this show. We are watching movies and looking at dad characters and dads as a theme in the movie we're exploring and therefore in the culture that produced it. Which again is me saying it in a grad schooly way, so I'm sorry. No, that's good. We're trying to understand ourselves by understanding how dads function in the least painful way possible. It's our dads ourselves. And sometimes you don't want to talk about your real dad. You want to talk about Michael Keaton. Best way to do it. Okay. So, <laughs> so two, just give me your quick elevator pitch about what Batman Returns is. Okay. Batman Returns is the sequel to Tim Burton's Batman. And it's a movie that feels like it barely has Batman in it. And it is mostly about two villains, Catwoman, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, and The Penguin, played by Danny DeVito. And Batman is also there. And it is just a wonderful, fun romp that feels as if Tim Burton designed his own Disney world in terms of just kind of the world we find ourselves in in this movie. And we get to watch Michelle Pfeiffer just doing her thing. Like, any, saying anything more would be gilding the lily. Like, Michelle Pfeiffer, Catwoman. Yeah, don't gild the lily. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen this yet, I mean, I think probably a lot of people saw this as kids or haven't watched it in a long time. But like, if you haven't seen it yet, like this is really, I think, a really wonderful performance and kind of is similar to the way I feel about Sharon Stone and Casino, where like when you watch Casino, you're like, oh, Sharon Stone has this in her, but like she needs a director mm. or a story that can let this out. And of course, I love stories about vengeful women and out of control women. And this is one of those. What is your pitch for Batman Returns? It's like an hour and 50 minutes of gleeful anarchy. <laughs> it really is. It's beautiful. It is strangely anti-corporate for a movie for children and a, and a comic book movie in a way that I think is actually more interesting and convincing than some of the Marvel movies tried to be. It's a movie that thinks Batman is kind of an idiot. Like, I don't think there's a Marvel movie that really drags its alleged hero in that way. No, and, and it is neurotic in a fascinating way, in a way that I love. Batman is a little bit of an afterthought in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> the movie itself just keeps being like, uh, and Batman also is, um, he's at home still. Batman is, there's a lot of like cutting to Batman just at home with Alfred, talking to Alfred, doing his computer stuff. And you're like, okay. Looking at microfiche. Yes, which is lovely. <laughs> and you just feel like Batman woke up and he had Alfred take his temperature and he was like, I don't want to be in this movie. And Alfred was like, okay, Master Wayne. Batman Returns as a Christmas movie. Let's go. <laughs> Indoor Batman. Hooga Batman. <laughs> 
before we begin, I should tell you or would love to tell you that we have a Patreon. Uh, you can support Why Our Dads there. It helps make the show happen. Our entry tiers are three and five dollars a month. Uh, if that's something you can do, that's great. And we super appreciate it. We appreciate everyone who is supporting us there. There are bonus episodes and uh, other fun content you can't get anywhere else. And if you're not able, that is totally fine. Uh, we just like having you here. And this is a weird year indeed <laughs> for money and other related things. And we totally understand that. Either way, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Let's go talk about Batman. Bruce Wayne, why are you dressed up like Batman? Because he is Batman, you moron. I like you. I want some respect. A recognition of my basic humanity. I want to find out who I am by finding my parents. Must you be the only lonely man beast in town? Life's a bitch. Now so am I. Stop global warming. Start global cooling. Make the world a giant icebox. Penguin, forgive his parents. I'm fully at peace with myself and the world. You don't need hands as long as you got heart. My heart is filled with love. I feel five feet tall. Don't be nuts. The law doesn't apply to people like him or us. One can never have too much power. If my life has a meaning, that's the meaning. Well, come what may. Merry Christmas, Mr. Wayne. Merry Christmas, Albert. Goodwill toward men. Okay, so I want to ask an honest question in the setup to why we watch this movie. Um, did you select this movie because there's a newsie in it? <gasps> I didn't, but every time I watch it, I'm like, there are newsboys in this movie, and they all look like they're 30 years old, and it's just such a such a dramatic and wonderful choice. Played by Roach from The People Under the Stairs. I think this is not the first time <laughs> this actor has come up in our viewings on Why Our Dads. Why did you select this movie? Okay, so originally we were talking about doing Die Hard this month, which is a very fun Christmas movie. And like so wonderfully about masculinity that I think it's very important that we do it, you know, at some point. But one of the debates people love to have is like, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Why or why not? And I find that tiresome, especially when more people could be saying Batman Returns is a Christmas movie because it is <laughs> and insisting on Die Hard being a Christmas movie, which I think like 90 percent of people accept anyway is taking time away from talking about how and why Batman Returns is a Christmas movie and also just how weird it is because it is like one of the weirdest superhero movies I've ever seen because it is the only superhero movie that I can think of where the director just doesn't give a shit about the main character anymore. No. <laughs> Except maybe like Batman v Superman because that movie doesn't give a shit about anybody <laughs> and it's just like a Robert Altman movie in a way but like that's different that's just ineptness <laughs> uh, you know i i hope that we're at the show for a while and that we can cover all the movies we ever want to cover because i so desperately you know wanted to, to cover bad santa and i know a lot of people wanted us to cover like jingle all the way and in elf and like these very you know these seemingly obvious so many movies yeah so many movies seemingly obvious christmas movies I'm glad that you chose this one because I had forgotten the Christmas themes in it. I haven't seen this movie for a very long time. I knew that when I saw it, I loved it.
loved it and I loved it for a lot of my childhood, but I didn't remember that this is the best written Batman movie for sure. And I would argue the best written superhero movie I've ever seen. Line for line, it's also one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. It is great. It is really funny. And yet there's so many moments where you're also like, wow, did they do that? And like, how did they get money? I think maybe the key thing about this movie is that I might be wrong. I wasn't in these meetings, but like, it seems like this emerged from the filet of the Tim Burton can do whatever he wants, yes. period. <laughs> no doubt. Because this movie is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> and they just okayed it. Similarly, it's in the tradition it, it, it has a lot of overlap with the Joe Dante can do whatever he wants mentality mm. that led to Gremlins to the new batch. Yes. You know, the first movie made a shitload of money. Someone was a little crazy and was only allowed to be crazy 30% on screen. And then they gave the person a sequel and they did whatever they wanted yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah. Similarly, I was watching Back to the Future 2 last night, which I had never seen before. And I was like, oh, I suddenly got Rick and Morty in a new way because this is really where we start to see Doc and Marty. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of direct sequels that I haven't seen that do seem to be like more of a, a sandbox for the director. Mm. And I I think something that feels very 90s kid to me is like growing up just assuming that the penguin has always been just this really gross guy <laughs> who just eats fish and he has these pointy black teeth and he just yells and lurches around and then you see like the Adam West Batman and you're like Huh. <laughs> huh. <laughs> he was a campy aristocrat. He was. So wh why is this movie weird? Okay. This movie is weird because I believe Batman doesn't show up until like 13 minutes in. And when mm. that happens, you're like, oh, right. This is a <laughs> Batman movie. Because until that point, we've gotten the introduction of Oswald Cobblepot, the scary little baby who eats a cat and whose aristocratic parents throw his entire wicker baby buggy into a crick and he is carried on a wonderful journey, which I don't know why this isn't a ride somewhere, <laughs> into some place where he's adopted by the circus performers and then he becomes king of the penguins at the abandoned Gotham Zoo, and he grows up to be Danny DeVito. Then we are introduced to Selena Kyle, who is the executive assistant for Max Shrek, a Trumpian figure who's tightly controlling the reins of Gotham and who is going to become Catwoman. Selena will, not Max. And then we get to Bruce Wayne, and we're like, oh, yeah, right. And then every time we come back to him throughout the movie, it's just like, oh, yeah, this is about Batman. And I personally, this is a me thing because I find Batman generally to be kind of funny. He's not my favorite superhero in terms of the things he does when he's being a superhero. But like, <laughs> to me, the Batman in action sequences are like pretty boring and half-hearted in this movie. Like, is that just me or is there objective truth to that? In this movie in particular? Yeah, he and his action are the least interesting things. It's spiced up only in this one exchange that he has with Catwoman where there are a lot of great puns. Yes. Where he says he tells her to eat wood 
there's more fiber, I think he says. Yes. Which is just fabulous. It's full on campy. It is full on campy. He says eat floor, I believe. Yeah. Eat floor. Yeah, it is. He is the least interesting part of this movie. The movie itself puts very little energy, it feels like, into his character. So what I really enjoy about what Batman does bring to this movie is we meet Oswald, who will later become Penguin. Oswald Gobblepot. He reveals himself to the city. He knows where he came from, but there's this whole like faking to the city that he's going to learn sort of where he came from. There's this whole like political theater element to this. Yeah. And Alfred immediately picks up that maybe Batman is jealous. Yeah that another famous orphan has arrived and gotten the sympathy of the city. (laughs) I didn't think of that, that he's also another orphan. Yeah, but it's wonderful. And Alfred literally goes, must you be the only lonely man beast in town? It's so good. And as I I tweeted immediately afterward, that's also what my anxiety asks me. (laughs) There's this jealousy with him and these characters and it works too in a really interesting way because I mean one like Oswald was discarded by his parents in a really tragic way for really tragic reasons and you're like why was he born like that is it like the toxic sewage in Gotham somehow is it did his parents do something terrible well we're led to believe too that the kind of company that Shrek runs is the kind of company that would lead to creating like mutant children and flipper babies right Shrek made like a stretch cream ointment yeah (laughs) just 100% mercury The villains in this movie are absolutely sympathetic. Their stories are, well, with the exception of Shrek, who who is named after Nosferatu. Right. Didn't know that. They're entirely sympathetic villains. And so contrasted against them, like Batman, who is essentially called a trust fund baby by several people in this movie... <laughs> Is the least sympathetic character of all of them. And then aside from Max Shrek, yeah. Yes, at least. And I hate Shrek for how he's portrayed and what he does, but at least Shrek, with regard to like what Americans value, is a self-made man. Mm-hmm. Batman is just the son of rich people. Well, and Batman also just spends so little time on screen. And I found like a debate on a Batman movie forum where people were like, Batman spends a higher percentage of time on screen in Batman Returns than in one of the Dark Knight movies. I forget. So it's idiotic that people say blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, that makes sense. But like this movie also just like there's less of it. So there's fewer minutes in it for Batman to be in. Like the Nolan movies are very long. They're so long. And they're so long. And also just the movie itself doesn't portray him very compellingly and like one of the ways for me that that happens is that he's increasingly reliant on technology in this Mm. like a lot of what he does comes down to gadgets and buttons which like it always has but he's not displayed really having to use very much intelligence or, or really being outgunned very often I don't really feel like there's ever a moment when it really seems like he's in peril no and on the other hand Catwoman is like maybe kind of undead She definitely has a ghostly pallor when she first comes back to her apartment, but her powers appear to be cartwheels and walking around in those heels, and she is wearing a raincoat for the entire movie. And sexual confidence. Yes. 
Yeah, right. Like that's her other, her superpower. Her unworldly power. Yeah, her unworldly power is that she's sexually confident. Yeah, her and Catherine Trammell, 1992 was like a bumper year for like slightly <laughs> supernatural blonde women whose power was sexual confidence. <laughs> she also, did you catch the scene where she definitely grabs Batman's dick? Yes. I found that fascinating. Yes. <laughs> It was wonderful. And you're like, oh, so he doesn't have any kind of like a, a an exoskeleton on that area, I guess. <laughs> it must be built out of the same rubber as his cowl. Yes. I mean, yeah, Batman in this movie is just an excuse for the universe to exist. The Batman universe to exist. Yeah. And Tim Burton does great things with it. Like the costuming in this movie is so great. Costuming representing like who the characters are is really fascinating. Like there's a whole scene where Batman puts on his outfit. We see that he has many outfits and lots of boots. And then we cut to Selena in her crappy car because she's not wealthy like Batman. And she's like throwing on her jerry-rigged costume, which you can like see clear stitching, which is cool, but like not intentionally so. And you see this really interesting contrast between like rich Batman and just like working class, angry, feminist, sexually confident Selena Kyle. I love that a lot. This is Burton at his greatest in that he's using the aesthetic to serve the narrative and not just like vomiting the aesthetic on you yeah and the aesthetic feels just so connected to the characters alex what to you not just to you but i feel like to the culture at large like is the the scene in this movie like the highlight of the whole thing honestly i'm so sorry i can't possibly answer that is it the nose bite no i would say it's the whole selena transforms sequence i feel like the movie like reaches a peak in that scene that like it never gets back to do you mean like starting from the death and going into the apartment and making making yes. her costume yeah, yeah yeah for sure my parents watched this when i was a kid i would have been four or five and i only remember that scene and i remember it scaring the bejesus out of me mm. and when i was a kid my rationale for that was that she destroys her stuffed animals mm. which also aren't even the first stuffed animals destroyed in this film we also see some stuffed animals get torched when the the bad circus the bad clowns, the red triangle circus is, you know, first wreaking havoc in Gotham and Batman has to show up and do his thing. Um, I love I feel like this is a Christmas movie in that Tim Burton way where Gotham at Christmas is like Jack Skeleton's Christmas. It's like they're doing all of the things <laughs> they have, all of the objects, but they clearly don't get it. And so there's this the sort of carnivalesque like death of childhood quality to gotham's christmas Mm. if you are holding a baby a clown will appear he will grab that baby and he will leap into the sewer with your baby (laughs) and then later the bad guy's plan is to kill literally every child in gotham yeah it starts with first sons and then he's like fuck it it's every kid (laughs) yes he really escalates <laughs> so the scene that traumatized you as a child is the most iconic scene in the movie. <laughs> yes well and also i think watching it now i know that as a kid i must have picked up on just the amazing intensity of this scene to me as an adult that's why i love it because so Selena's interesting we meet her as this like mousy secretary character she tries to pipe up in a meeting the men talk over her michael murphy is there he always plays politicians And so she goes home and then she has to go back to work. And then she apparently decides to just do some private research on how corrupt her boss is and his nefarious plan for Gotham. 
which I find interesting for her. (laughs) (laughs) They don't give us any reason for her doing that. We don't see her doing that. She's just like, oh, I found out that you're trying to suck power out of the city so that you can therefore create a nuclear plant and sell it back to us. And I think that's bad. She just sort of confronts him about it. We don't get an explanation for it, but the way she is treated in that job, like she's not just talked over, like her boss, Shrek, basically says that she hasn't yet been domesticated or something along those lines. She hasn't been housebroken. It's obviously, you know, she's a kitty cat. Right. Her pathway from being a woman in her job who is, you know, condescended to in a number of different ways to murdered by her her boss to then becoming not just radically feminist in action but straight up red army faction she's going to kill the corporate overlord like at a party of his which is like definitely something the Bader Meinhof gang would have done yeah I love so much (laughs) I love her ascent this movie is profoundly anti-corporate in a way that I'm pretty sure most movies marketed towards nine-year-old boys aren't. Yeah. It says global warming by name in 1992. (laughs) Right. That's the magic of Tim Burton. Yeah. I mean, that was a pretty young age to see it. Do you remember when Catwoman, if she ever did, when she like clicked for you, when you were like, this is cool? It was when I came back to it this summer. There was a period when I was watching all the Batmans and I got to this movie and I've been watching them with my mom and her stipulation was that she would watch all of them except for The Dark Knight because she doesn't like the Heath Ledger Joker Mm. and except for Batman Returns because she found the Danny DeVito penguin so gross. (laughs) And so we watched all of them in sequence and then I came back and watched this by myself and I was like, this is the best one. And I totally got why my mom couldn't handle that character. He is constantly eating a raw fish. He is gross. And one of the things I find frustrating about Batman movies, A, I think attempting to understand Batman by watching Batman movies is like trying to understand your parents' marriage by listening to their conversation like through a grate from upstairs in your room because you're just going to get like every third word. (laughs) And the Batmen of lore and comics at this point. There's just so much you can do and so much you can experience and so many weird villains. And I don't know that world. I guess like know of that world. And so by the time you get a movie, it's like, it's so weird to have such a big showpiece with just like one story in it when the character was born and bred in comics. What people kept telling me to do when I was watching the Batman movies and what I didn't do because I have a hard time starting a show I haven't seen before is to watch Batman the Animated Series. Mm. They're like, that's the best Batman and that's the best Joker and that's the best for character development and blah, blah, blah. And like, I'm sure that's true, but I'm a movie person. And so I guess what I love most about Batman Returns is that it feels really full as a story because it doesn't try to depict Mm. Batman going through any kind of an elaborate arc. It's just like, he likes this Selena Kyle lady and also this Catwoman lady, but it's not to be. The end, like, that's his his little story here and it's nice and he's a B-plot for these other two characters. I think the problem with Batman's enemies and maybe all of the movies we have is that they all want to fuck him and no one will just come out and admit the subtext 
that if you have a nemesis, the point is that you're obsessed with each other and there's an intimacy there and a need to be known and a feeling that you have found your counterpart and your equal. And I just feel like that need for intimacy through a nemesis really is so present in so many stories, but especially in in Batman stories. And this is the only one I've seen where it's like, Selena Kyle slash Catwoman decides to not kill Batman, but to humiliate Batman, partly because he rejected her sexually just when she was starting to feel good about herself. And she <laughs> says it out loud. And I'm like, thank you. You're petty. You wanted him. It didn't work out. You want to humiliate the Batman. Finally, someone who has a recognizable motive that they can announce to people. Like, I just like her. You'll be surprised to hear that I've said something about Batman on the internet and I've been corrected by people. You got, really? (laughs) You say Batman's name was Bryce Wanamaker? Yeah, (laughs) Bryce Dwayne. I've said (laughs) that Batman in one one way or another is like a symbol of sort of aspirational fascism. And this is an important correction. People have said that was kind of solidified when Frank Miller came along. It's not surprising in that like Frank Miller's kind of like a Tom Clancy Mm. character in that he had kind of right-wing vision in context contrast to Reagan times in ways where you would think that he's criticizing Reagan, but he just wants to be more like Reagan. (laughs) So Batman's born of that. Mm -hmm. I think the text of Batman in particular in movies usually has one interesting thing to say about people's pursuit of fascism as a means of security. And like the Nolan movies did that very much in like a way that inadvertently or intentionally were sort of like pro-Bush administration in a fascinating way. They certainly meshed very well with it. And like watching them now, watching them lately, I was like, this is so of the time of the Iraq war. Like these feel teachable about what that culture was. And even, I mean, down to sort of how consumer electronics are used for surveillance, it was surprisingly ahead of its time, though not surprisingly, because we were obviously long going down this road. But I bring all this up because this movie... It speaks to this moment in our pursuit of populist fascism better than any Batman text I've seen so far. Mm. There are some similarities with Shrek and Trump in his intent being just like sort of a industrialist first and not caring about people generally. The marriage of villainy between Penguin and Shrek where Shrek ultimately uses Penguin, who is not very bright and who is extremely resentful and very angry. It's very emotionally volatile guy. Yes, born of what his 1% parents did by way of like neglecting him as a means of using him to leverage public support for what's essentially a pro-law and order candidate so the corporation can do whatever it wants. Mm-hmm. Holy shit, the Trumpian moment that's described here. The only way that it's not Trumpian is that when Penguin finally turns on Shrek and comes after him and threatens to take his son, Don Jr. <laughs> he's not really Don Jr., but he's referred to as the Great White Dope, which is amazing. Yeah. Shrek volunteers himself, and I cannot imagine a situation in which someone comes for a Trump kid and Trump goes, take me instead. That's not happening. But the Gotham aspiration towards law and order, you know, because of like this situation that's been devised by these two is incredible. Since 
the election, I felt my interest in the specifics of the Trump White House increase because I there have been periods where I've been interested in all of those people and have been able to have sort of sustained periods of focus, kind of learning about what their deal is in, in some specific areas. But for the most part, I've had this feeling of just like that the greatest scam that Donald Trump ever pulled was creating a situation where Americans had to allow his voice into their homes basically every day. <laughs> and that, you know, it's important to know what's going on, but I didn't want to be part of that scheme more than I needed to, basically. And also that I, yeah, I just didn't didn't want it. But anyway, so I have been listening to the audiobook of Fire and Fury, mm. which is interesting. Cause that's like the book that came out about the first days of the Trump White House. And I remember it was controversial, and I can't remember why. I have a few guesses. But it's very interesting to me to just sort of be lying on my couch playing, like, phone games and just listening to this breathless recapitulation of, like, Priebus versus Bannon versus Gervanka. Like, also, they call it Gervanka, which I'm sure people did in real life or do or whatever, but it sounds really... <laughs> just say Jared and Ivanka. Like, it yeah, takes yeah, yeah. the same amount of time. It's <laughs> real janky. It, it does not work. <laughs> it's like they're not Benefer. Like, this is an upgrade that they don't deserve. They didn't make something real, like Geely. Um <laughs> I, you know what it feels like? It feels like watching Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, which was criticized by people when it came out, I think, for not depicting what was happening in France and with the revolution and the situation. And it's like, it's about someone who doesn't know the situation and whose job it is to pet sheep and make babies. You know, it, the weirdest thing I think about this narrative is that, like, listening to the story as it's told in this iteration anyway, and which meshes with other insights that I've, you know, kind of had into the situation over the years, it seems as if the very people who were so intent on clawing their way to positions of power and then staying in them really are just completely disconnected from the actual job that they're doing and the people that they're allegedly affecting. Like, it's just, it all feels, it's just like watching Dynasty. It's just like rich people screwing each other and just really not thinking about anyone else. And it just makes sense to me, you know? I'm just like, right, it's not that anyone was scheming to screw the American people. It's just no one thought of us. Or if they did think of us, it was as, you know, profitable debt cells or something like that. I think we mentioned this in an episode at some point. There's something it's against my entire nature of trying to be hold a space for empathy as much as possible at all times. But I always find satisfying these scenarios in which Trump is inadvertently faced with public re response or public reaction, like at a baseball game or when he had to visit RBG's, whatever that was, like the state funeral. Her lying in state. Yeah. Right. Her lying in state. And he had to be confronted with hearing people hate him mm. because so much of the reality that you're describing is constructed around never being confronted with the people who are on the receiving end of all the badness. Yeah. And it feels satisfying in some way, even though I know it's a distant consolation to feel like there are these moments of discomfort where they have to be confronted with it that I know for a fact they rationalize and are not able to hear. But I don't know. I just like it. Yeah. I mean, it's better than nothing. Yeah. And then I was saying to someone the other day, in my heart, I want Trump to have to be removed bodily from the White House. And they were like, well, you know, like really 
that would just energize his base more and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I know, I know. I don't want it to happen for America. I want it to happen for me, Mm. I guess. And then I was watching Fargo and they got to the part at the end, which I just, we're going to do an episode on that movie soon. But like the part close to the end where basically the chickens come home to roost for Jerry Lundegaard and the police come and find him in his hotel in Bismarck. You know, he's trying to get out the bathroom window and they have to drag him out of the bathroom and throw him down on the bed and they're handcuffing him. And I swear to God, the direction that they chose for that scene was for like William H. Macy to scream, not even like a baby, but like an infant, (laughs) like a week old infant. I can hear it. (laughs) Right? I don't need that to be a spectacle. I just need that feeling of like a man whose entire life is constructed around hiding from himself the fact that he's a baby, maybe realizing that he's a baby. I just need him to know. He'll never know. It'll never uh, happen. Yeah, I need it though. So who's it for? It's not for him. It would it would just be for me. <laughs> I understand that. I, I often want things that are absolutely contrary to probable progress, but I need anyway. Right. I think what actually maybe that speaks to is like a need for justice, mm-hmm. which I think is very wholesome. I think people are feeling like, I need to see this man humiliated or destroyed partly because of my justifiable animosity towards him specifically and partly also because I would like to see evidence that we live in a world where there is some kind of cause and effect because like there has been no indication of that certainly for the past few years and I don't think there's ever really been more than like a light patina of justice in America but like we've at least done better in the past at pretending we care about it or like people thinking they care about it, which like maybe this is better because the artifice is removed. I don't know. But like, I, I think that one of the things we're craving is justice. And I think that that's positive. And I think that justice doesn't have to be retributive, although we do confuse those concepts in America quite freely. I think that when we crave justice, what we want is to see that people who knowingly conspire to harm other people will be stopped somehow. And that there are safety mechanisms in our culture that are oriented toward protecting the safety of everybody. There are a lot of routes you can take to get to that, and I think it's a good place to want to go. I think it's fair that we have these feelings. Yeah, and I think that's why we love Batman. (laughs) With the exception of all of the various kind of commentaries that come with the various iterations, it's a very tidy, satisfying approach to exacting justice. And like you said earlier, like... um, your revenge thrillers. That's what those things hit in a beautiful way. It gives us the little hits that we're not able, we're often not able to have in abstract systems of power. Mm. All I have a blue Christmas without you. No. 
snowflakes start falling. That's when the blue memories start calling. You'll be doing all right with your Christmas of white, and I'll have a The Penguin's tactic, which works extremely well, is create a sense of peril, emerge as a protector, be embraced <laughs> by the public, even though I am gross and like to grope women. And it works. What's he say to that girl? She says, you're the hottest role model a young person could have. And he says, and you're the hottest young person a role model could have. <laughs> it's so gross. <laughs> it's so gross. <laughs> It's funny, too, because, like, as the movie progresses, you see more and more of Frank from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Because, like, the part where, you know, things are really escalating. First, he insists his minions start calling him Oswald Cobblepot, his name given to him by his parents instead of Penguin. And then they call him that. And he says, I am not a human being. I am an animal. (laughs) Call me Penguin. (laughs) Cold-blooded! <laughs> you know, speaking of what you said earlier about the evolution of how the Penguin is illustrated until not long before this, I mean, he was essentially like an aristocratic presenting character. Why the shift to someone who is aristocratic but thrown away by their parents? Oh, what a good question. I thought you were, I was all ready for you to ask me why the shift to someone who's gross. <laughs> and my answer was going to be because Tim Burton likes gross guys, like Beetlejuice. He loves a protagonist with like open sores mm. on him, some kind of an infection. Penguin's like one step grosser than Beetlejuice somehow. He is grosser, yeah. I mean, the Penguin is kind of like Smeagol. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He's someone who, yeah, who eats a lot of fish and uh, is just stuck down there in the sewers. And But it, it's just interesting that the first Batman movie that Tim Burton did, called Batman, is so much about the death of Bruce Wayne's parents that it actually retcons a story where the Joker is the one who killed them. And so Bruce Wayne is able to go on this journey of avenging his parents and finding this kind of balance in his life. And then it feels as if for a sequel, 
Tim Burton was like, well, we've already done Bruce's parents. Mm. So someone else's parents. Seems like Tim Burton's been working out some parent stuff for a while. I don't know where you get that. <laughs> I like how so far our Tim Burton movies have been Big Fish and Batman Returns. These are big <laughs> underwhelming dad movies. We also have to point out we only see the Penguin's dad very briefly, but he is in fact Paul Rubens. Yes, and his mom. Oh, no, that's not his mom. Sorry, I was going to say his mom is Jen Hooks, but that is the campaign helper. His mom is a lady who I recognize from a first season episode of Law and Order. That woman has been in my life in media. But I can't remember from where. I've seen her a lot. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, you know who she is? She's the waitress from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yes, that's exactly who she is. Yeah, so she and Pee Wee got married. He made a lot of money. They moved to Gotham. And then they had a baby that they had to throw in a river and never mention again. It's very sad. The way that Tim Burton doubles down on the tension in the movie... And I never even really put two and two together that the retconning of Joker made it possible so that he could confront his parents' killers and there's some satisfaction there. You ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? The only way to intensify is to have a new villain who is made villainous by not just abandonment of his parents, but the sadistic abandonment of his parents. And then he essentially, you know, knowing that that's the ultimate pain in one way or mm -hmm. another, turns his hostility toward every child in Gotham. <laughs> yeah, so the biblical themes in this, what's interesting is that there's actually more of a Moses theme yes. in this movie because the cobblepots make the apparent mistake of buying what looks like a wicker pram, which then floats. So Oswald, instead of drowning, the I also love, I love the opening credits of this movie because we just follow this baby as we listen to this majestic Danny Elfman Batman suite. And so the baby, you know, is saved by being in basically a basket. And then he decides to kill the firstborn, initially the firstborn, child or the firstborn son of every house in Gotham. And it's like, well, that's familiar. It's a Moses. It's a Passover story. <laughs> Moses has come up several times in, I, I just watched Night of the Hunter and Moses comes up in that story as like a soothing story to the poor children whose parents have been murdered. That's a weird soothing story to choose. Very strange. Yes. Billy Bob Thornton's character in the first season of Fargo tells the Moses story out loud as part of his villainy. You know, this is very much a Moses story, but it's like Moses turned into the Egyptians, right? Because he ends up pivoting. Right. Well, Moses turned into God, in fact, because yeah. <laughs> he's killing the firstborn child of every household. He is aspiring to take on the power of a deity because running for political office has unmoored him from reality, which again seems resonant. I also, I was watching Back to the Future 2 for the first time last night, and Biff is so clearly based on Trump Slash Tony Montana, I guess. <laughs> but mostly Trump, I think. And I'm just like, okay, so like, it's not as if people didn't see this coming. <laughs> it's really interesting to think about the fact that like, as Trump was first becoming this major figure in pop culture, we had these characters who like, you don't have to look very hard to see culture responding to like this new significant actor within it and being like this kind of 
situation seems worrying. I'm just going to put that out there in my unrelated movie. I was talking about this movie on Twitter today and a Batman Returns super fan, you know, engaged and was like, well, here are the reasons the Trump parallels don't work and whatever. It was all fine points. But they had said something that was really interesting where they said, all the Batman villains, after Joker in particular, are sympathetic in some way. You understand how they got to that point. Or even just kind of anti-heroes, not even necessarily villains, like to your point earlier. And this person had said, I wonder if they ever make a Trump biopic, if they'll they'll run into an issue of not being able to make him sympathetic because he's not sympathetic. And I think this is why we do the show in one way or another, is that I think that Trump is extraordinarily sympathetic. The outcomes in the past 50 years in particular are hard to digest and easy to hate and I do on the latter a lot of the time mm. but like the import of his story is it seems by all accounts Trump's abusive and wildly sadistic father created a fucking monster it's like important to understand <laughs> the connection well it's also that thing of his father's choices you can't ascribe everything to them but I feel like the way that you get parented can have a really strong effect on what you bring into the world. Yes. And what gets awakened and what gets fed and what doesn't. First of all, there's a reason why, for example, the movie Nixon came out in the 90s. Mm. There's a reason why we tend to take like a bare minimum of 20 years to return to tyrants and think, why are they like that? What ingredients went into this? Like, how right. can we study this recipe to try and not replicate it perhaps as much with like the children that we are raising because I personally I've had periods of being able to be highly interested in Trump and I think like when he was running for president and I was certain that he was going to be trounced swiftly and surely I became very interested in his history and I remember reading a lot about how did he get started what were his initial deals what's the situation with his family blah 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 and then when he got elected, I guess, you know, it's different. And it's different when someone has his foot on the throat of the nation and is, you know, killing your loved ones. The deaths that he's responsible for will continue long after he's out of office, because if you so successfully aid in the spread of a virus that, you know, doesn't mind killing people and likes to be propelled out of people's mouths at rallies and stuff like that, that's a legacy that will continue for a long time. And so I think it's going to be a long time, I think, maybe before we as a culture can take the kind of interest in him that allows us to, like, in a significant way, be like, what were the recognizable ingredients in making this person so awful? <laughs> and how can we approach that constructively? <sighs> I don't know. There were periods during his presidency when I was able to become interested in him in a detailed way by listening to the Trump Inc. podcast because that's like all about his business and finances. And so if you like go deep on his finances, then it's like you're approaching it kind of not frontally entirely. And what is to me like incredibly obviously clear is that like he has, as far as I can tell from this distance, the tenderest part of his ego, his biggest hot spot is that he's never done anything by himself and that he's never made money. And he's, you know, even during the times when one could, from a distance, imagine that he might be turning a profit, he wasn't. And he was just taking these massive transfusions of, of cash from his dad. Yes. To the point where his dad, when his casino was foundering, went in and bought like a couple million dollars worth of chips and then was like, bye, just keep it. 
I think that exactly for the reason that you just said, which is it seems that we go into some sort of psychic dormancy for 20 years before we're ready to examine the details of how we ended up in a place. And while we're in that dormancy, we're creating some other monster. And we got to recover a little bit, heave ourselves gaspingly onto a rock and be like, this rock will never betray me. Yes. I mean, I think that that's naturally what what ends up happening. I, I do think it is important to look at and understand how and why things happened. It's also extremely important to exercise caution in projecting parental accountability, because I think if you like point at that with regard to Trump, you are accidentally indicting a lot of people for their parenting when like maybe it wasn't their parenting that led to their kids to do one thing or another. But it is possible to be sympathetic about how and why someone turned out a way And like I do every day at the pit of your core, fucking hate what they turned out to be and how they exercise their pathos. Well, this is like when I tweet something about my dad saying something horrible to me and me saying something like shutting him down verbally, which I don't do very much anymore. But in the past, I tend to get responses along the lines of don't talk this way to your parents. You'll feel bad when they're dead or like try and empathize with your parents. And I'm like, I empathize with my parents. Like, I understand where they're coming from. You know, obviously, you can always learn more and you can always feel more connected to someone. But, like, I feel pretty fucking connected to these people. (laughs) And uh, I know all kinds of stuff about how horrible my dad's dad was, how badly he was emotionally abused growing up, how the things he brought to the table parenting me were, like, an incredible improvement on what he got, but like, he is not the main character in my life. And I need to create boundaries emotionally and be able to say, fuck you, you can't talk that way to me or to any human being. And you have to treat me like a fucking human. Mm. I think a concept that trips people up both personally and on these like national emotional reckoning type scales is the idea that I must not be empathizing with my dad because I'm not allowing him to walk all over me. I'm not allowing him to get his way or because I'm being a bitch to him. And it's like, I have to be a bitch because if I don't, he'll piss all over me. Right. You're not allowing him to win at racquetball. (sighs) Yes. Yes. Which is a line in this movie, which is just amazing. Selena gets broken up with basically on an answering machine by a guy who she regrets not letting win at racquetball. And you're like, yeah, you be Catwoman. This is justified. Speaking of empathy and mitigation. Right. I mean, which is implying exactly what you're saying, though, is that it's like maybe I should have shown a better affection or shown myself as a better partner by allowing myself to get walked on. Yes. Right. You know, and it does it doesn't happen often. And I'm, I'm so just overwhelmingly grateful for so many of the people who listen and so many people who chime in. But once in a great while, I think because someone is talking to themselves and is trying to give themselves advice that they think that they need. They will tell us in one way or another that there are things that we need to do mm-hmm. to like let go of stuff that our parents did or like apologize. It happens like once a week and it's not if you consider that we get maybe, you know, hundreds of interactions a day once a week is not a lot. Every time it happens, I have to talk myself out of getting real salty. I mean, the truth is this. My view of my father growing up in so many ways was despite all of the complications was in uncritical love and I still love this person 
so deeply who is gone and have such warm feelings towards this person. Mm -hmm. But it's only recently that I've given myself the space to acknowledge some of the shit that happened, not just in my life, but to the life of the people who love me because of my father. And that doesn't acknowledging that doesn't negate either having the love or maybe like some people, they don't have the love because they can't because of how bad this stuff happened or whatever. And I understand that you anonymous person on the internet, maybe you need to believe that you can do that and it'll liberate you. And I'm glad for that, Yeah. but don't get it on me because it took me over three decades to give myself the luxury of this space to understand my relationship and my relationships in the formation of those relationships in a way that's not just the smallest piece of the pie. Yeah. And I think people's immediate impulse is to correct. And this is a very man thing. And I'm guilty of this a lot of the time, which is like, let me offer you a solution to something. And it's like, no, how about just acknowledge that it's fucking hard to acknowledge fucking hard things. <laughs> And it doesn't negate love. Right. Or just being like, wow, that sucks. I think the phrase, wow, that sucks, very useful. And we could all use it more because when someone (laughs) wants to complain to you, especially like your partner or someone who's like has an intimate relationship with you, I feel like most of the time what people want to hear is, wow, that sucks. Yes. It's like, do I need you to offer me a solution or do I need you to acknowledge that I'm having a hard time as a human being and just be like, you're having a hard time. And mm. I can be like, oh, my God, I am. Right. <laughs> That's an extraordinary point. And, and also, like, I guess if you're comfortable enough with somebody, it doesn't hurt to ask when someone goes into something like what that person needs in the moment. Because often we try to offer what we think we would need. And it is not, in fact, what that other person is. Yes. Well, and it's funny, too, because that response, like, to me is mimicking the very dad behavior that it's been so hard for me to get out from under, which is if someone is having an emotion, then that is your problem automatically. And it's like, Mm. no, it isn't. (laughs) Yeah. Like, if you say something and that inspires a strong emotional response in, in them, then it must be your fault. And it's like, no, their insides might be just like a crystal cavern that are just waiting for someone to go <laughs> tap. And then it just... Yes. <laughs> I love that we just went on this aside for 10 minutes, but this sets up for me like what Selena's superpower really is, yeah. which is Selena goes from a person and, and it just dawned on me and I'm sure there's probably 4,000 theses r- written on this exact topic, <laughs> but the fact that this movie came out of the moment that Bikini Kill was like a really popular band and like third wave feminism was in the popular consciousness is fascinating. <laughs> but like Selena essentially goes from a place where it is a totally rational thought for her to believe that she should let a man win at racquetball because that will make her a viable partner to being so repulsed by that proposal to self in proposal to women generally that she becomes the physical incarnation of that repulsion. Mm -hmm. I love the part where she's in the sporting goods store and the cops show up and she knocks the guns out of their hands with whips and tells them to leave. Mm. And they do, I guess they're security guards, but whatever, you know, it's just like, this is Selena and the police. She's like, go away. And they're like, all right. (laughs) 
Well, and they, and they essentially say something along the lines of like, I don't know if I should be turned on or scared or scared or turned on. And she says, silly men always confusing your pistols for your privates. Yes. Yeah. Selena's is great because she just shows up and says what everyone's thinking. And you're like, can she do that? Like, can he? it's like she's the drunk aunt at Thanksgiving who's like, <laughs> Bob's having an affair, <laughs> Sheila. Everyone knows. <laughs> 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 you know, returning to the, the conversation we had earlier, it becomes clear that that's the contrast between her as a masked figure and, and Batman as a masked figure is like Batman essentially best case scenario. Batman is a center left moderate in his belief that like this corporation should be taken down. Wealth certainly shouldn't be distributed. At some point, Batman pats himself on the back as Bruce Wayne saying, you know, that like Batman didn't blow it. He's, he might've saved millions in property damage. Like that's a literal thing that, that he says. And Selena is like, no, you have to literally shoot the corporate bad guy dead because if you don't and just leave him to the justice system, like you know for a fact that he can buy himself out of the justice system, which is going back to the, the Trumpian parallels in this movie, exactly what this country is about to face. Yeah, the impossibility of prosecuting white collar crime. When meanwhile, Batman had no compunctions about literally exploding one of those circus guys. <laughs> he straps a bomb to him and then he throws him into the sewer somewhere. He throws him somewhere. And so it's kind of comedic. It's like you just see this explosion behind him and you're like, Batman exploded that guy. That was an extrajudicial killing. <laughs> just like explode another guy. You're clearly fine with exploding guys. Just like, do they have to be attacking you and then you can explode them? Are you standing your ground? Like, what is your personal code, if any? Selena's the only person I can think of in any Batman movie that has a logical ideological through line yeah. that is not law and order fascism for the sake of safety. Or that she's just a crazy villain. I was reading a list of the rogues gallery, the different Batman villains on Wikipedia this morning. Cause I was like, who are the villains that like haven't been in movies? And like, what will I then start to fantasize about once I read about them? Hmm. But the description for the penguin is something like, he is one of Batman's only enemies who is sane and in control of his <laughs> behaviors. And you're like, well, that says a lot. And it's true, because like he is often like taking people to Arkham Asylum. What do these people need in order to stop being supervillains then? Yeah, Arkham Asylum needs a cash infusion from Wayne Enterprises. They do. Not doing enough of a good job. Like, yeah, what are they doing in there? What do they do at Arkham? Again, I know you're a movie person, not a serious person, but I, I would echo to anyone who is interested in spending more time with Batman that the, the animated series is fantastic. And I think that this is the best Batman movie I've ever seen. Like I said up front, I think it's maybe the best superhero movie because it's just pandemonium. But the Batman Lego movie is my second favorite Batman movie ever that explores the pathos explicitly and for laughs in a way that I have not seen any other Batman do. I got to watch that. I do want to watch the series one as well. I just, you know, I have to watch Veep three more times and then I'll watch a new thing. Well, knowing that you're going to take on a series is so daunting. It is. Yeah. I mean, what I love about a movie is that like whether it's good or bad, you can figure it out in about two hours or less. Whereas a series you can watch you can really throw a lot of your time at a show and finally be like, I don't like this, I think, actually. But then you're like, well, I'm kind of attached to these assholes and I want to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, 
I'm, I'm sometimes sometimes I'm afraid that I'll like it. Yes. The listener recently said I should watch Justified. And they told me that I only needed to watch the first two seasons. And I loved hearing that. Someone else was like, no, you need to watch. I was like, no, no, no. If you tell me that I might have to watch six seasons, I'm never going to watch yeah. the show. Because why when people recommend Supernatural and they're like, you just watch the first five, like compared to 15 of them, you're just like, that sounds doable. <laughs> like five years of guys driving around. Batman does this very weird thing, the first Batman, where... They cast Billy D. Williams yeah. as Harvey Dent. And you're like, oh, I'm so excited to see the adventures of Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent. And then they're just like, never mind. <laughs> do you think that there were plans to make him Two-Face eventually? Yeah, or do something. Like, he doesn't do anything. He just, Isn't he just, he's at a banquet and he's like, I'm Harvey Dent. And then that's it. I love it because Billy D. Williams just exudes sex everywhere. And he does even in that like side, you know, just him as that character. I love, love it. My guess is that someone thought it was important to set up a Billy D. Williams's two-faced situation. And then just the situation disintegrated. <laughs> and then we end up with Tommy Lee Jones. And they were like, we, we're, we're going to cast a new guy. But for continuity, he has to have a blank ee name in the middle and then no one will be confused I did want to ask, though, before we get to the daddy piece, do you think that outside of using tragedy to shape the, you know, sympathetic or otherwise narratives of the people in the Batman universe, that it has any philosophy about parenting generally? Well, it's interesting because they have Oswald slash the Penguin have this speech about how he was rejected by his parents because he was a little bit different. We also have to acknowledge that this is a movie where famously Catwoman is wearing a lot of, I think, latex. I don't really know my shiny fabrics, but something shiny and exciting, kind of rubbery. And then the penguin also has these like shiny rubber gloves that he wears on his penguin hands. He also seems to be styled after Lobster Boy, <laughs> which is a different marine animal, Tim Burton. I guess they're supposed to look like flippers, but they look non-functional in any use. They're not helpful in any situation. No. Yeah, you're right. I do love his latex gloves that accessorize nicely with Catwoman's whole look. Yeah, like you just feel like when Catwoman visits him in his weird bell tower that's right above his campaign headquarters... <laughs> That she would perhaps be charmed by the fact that she doesn't have to take him out shopping for them to look matchy, you know, when they go out. Like, he already is so coordinated with her. <laughs> yes. So we see the penguin have the speech. But then he gets skeevy. Then he oversteps his bounds. He does. The scene where Catwoman and the penguin meet up and basically decide to go in together as tentative allies for now is amazing. It's like if heat was fun. <laughs> so by the time this comes out last week, we'll have been our conversation uh, uh, with Anterio about 
Home Alone. And she makes the great point that the partnership between Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara illustrates that men and women can just be friends. Mm -hmm. And something that happens in the relationship with Penguin and Catwoman is it's certainly a mutually beneficial business partnership up to a particular point. Mm -hmm. And then he starts to imagine her you know, in the creepiest way, bringing him a martini, I think, is what he, he suggests as far as... Once he's mayor of Gotham. Right, what he's going to be the mayor, she's going to then bring him a martini, which is played... I don't know if it's even played for laughs, but it's so fucking on the nose about... This is a movie about men transgressing their business relationship and taking it to like an inappropriate new territory it happens with her boss obviously who throws her out a window and it happens with him yeah that's inappropriate people didn't just do that in the 70s in gotham that's inappropriate don't do it you're right i didn't realize before how much of a through line workplace sexual harassment is in this movie but it's like selena kyle is transformed into Catwoman, and then she seeks to make an allyship with the Penguin, who also can't be appropriate with her. And it's like, just be an appropriate supervillain. Like, Mm. isn't it enough to humiliate Bruce Wayne? Like, do you have to eviscerate a powerful (laughs) woman as well? And I love that the thing that sends Selina over the egg once she, like, comes back, you know, kind of undead. It's also interesting to me, okay, the big Catwoman transformation scene is she transformed when all those cats run around on top of her and chew on her, which, by the way, happens to me every morning now? <laughs> or is she transformed during the Selena transformed sequence when she sews that bodysuit? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love how it does not answer it at all. Yeah. We just know that she is transformed somewhere in there and we don't know how. Or is she transformed somehow in the death and then the cats are attracted to her transformation like what is I don't I don't know we don't know right did she always have a cat woman inside of her or yeah it's very Peter Parker getting bitten by a radioactive spider I can't actually imagine okay here's my new hypothesis Gotham is such a weird place I bet there are some alley cats there that just have like super cat you know antigens or whatever in their saliva and if they like scratch you and lick you, then you get super catified. That makes sense to me. Yes. Okay. I'm happy. That's the one. First, Selena gets pushed out of a window. Then she has her Gotham cat experience. And then she staggers home and destroys a lot of her belongings and sews herself her cat suit. And the thing that sets her off and pushes her over the edge into this frenzy of destruction and creation is her playing her messages the classic 90s woman activity if this movie and singles are to be believed Mm. and getting an ad for gotham lady perfume the perfume that will inspire your boss to ask you to stay (laughs) late for a candlelit board meeting for two and we see what happens when that happens right beforehand the meeting for two ends in you getting pushed out a window i love how there were like non-superhero movies that tried to address sexual harassment in the early 90s not that many of them and they didn't do that good of a job a lot of them and then there's batman returns which does an amazing job (laughs) is anyone think this woman isn't justified honestly (laughs) what do you make of her she makes various commentaries about 
for lack of a better word, damsels in distress. At some point she intervenes upon a woman getting mugged and she is strangely condescending and victim blamey there. And then Mm -hmm. later when Penguin pushes this woman who's supposed to, who's like some sort of beauty queen, pushes her off of a building. She's the Christmas lighter girl. She's like a rock hat but with more fur on the bust, I think. Yeah, who who we're set up to know is not necessarily that bright because she has to repeat to herself what she has mm-hmm. to do in order to light this Christmas tree, and she ends up doing it inadvertently when her body is thrown onto uh, uh, the Christmas tree lighting mechanism. But uh, Catwoman confronts the part part of this exchange that they end up having where where he becomes more lascivious than normal is you know she reveals that it was her understanding that he was not going to kill this woman all of her exchanges in one way or another for the rest of the movie that don't have to do with killing mm-hmm. max illustrate whatever her perspective is on women in danger i feel like this is one of the things that makes her an anti-hero because i think batman at his best is someone who cares about gotham and who feels positive things towards it and who wants to bring it back maybe to the place that it once was. And, there, you know, there's an idea really in a lot of our Batman movies and presumably in, in greater Batman lore, but I don't know, that things when the Elder Waynes were in control were this kind of mid-century utopia, even though Batman started in the 40s. It's like how when we flash back to Homer and Marge in in high school, they're like, probably this is all happening in the 90s now, which is upsetting. And um, so we keep pushing the Batman timeline forward. And I feel like we've ended up with with a kind of mid-century nostalgia and have come to see Gotham as the kind of, quote, inner city that really we love talking about in American political discourse today and this place that can be fixed and transformed and brought back to the way it once was, which is a stupid goal, but it is potentially a sincere one, Mm. you know? And I feel like Bruce Wayne, to me, comes off as someone who, like, doesn't fundamentally understand the city that he is trying to protect and has a pretty narrow ability to be helpful within it. But, like, boy, is he going to do his darndest. And he's going to overstep, and he's going to think he knows more than he does. But, like, he seems sincere, in all this. And I think Catwoman is, you know, that classic, really like very similar to a a character in a a rape revenge movie, just this woman who has been transformed by trauma and who we as an audience are going to want to root for and also want to watch be incapacitated because she scares us. Although that doesn't happen here. She just sort of melts into the night. Yeah. And she's, and she's also new, to being Catwoman. Yeah, she's a baby superhero villain. Right, she hasn't necessarily had a time to form an ideology. Yeah, her ideology <laughs> is that she's been murdered twice this week, which, like, to be <laughs> fair, is like, the, you know, you don't, you can just start with that, and then over time, like, maybe in six months, be like, what am I really doing this for, though? Like, if I hate men and women, then, like, what's that about? <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Batman's tidy motivations are going back to the way things were and being jealous of other masked mysterious people (laughs) and avoiding property damage this is a movie where batman comes out and admits that he cares about preventing property damage like it's really i love just how everyone's guts are just right out you know spilled totally in this movie (laughs) 
All right. Well, so this is as tidy a place as any to ask. Well, I guess it's tidy. Who is the father in Batman? Is it Batman? I don't know. Because like, okay, so... Is it Alfred? We have Alfred. (laughs) We have Mr. Cobblepot, played by Paul Rubens. We also have Max Shrek. I'm going to say Max Shrek because the thing about Shrek is that it's implied that the penguin is the way he is because of Shrek chemicals. And we can even imagine they might have something to do with Catwoman. It's fair to imagine that Max Shrek is the author directly or indirectly of a lot of the pain that the citizens of Gotham have experienced over the years and perhaps created situations that like made parents make the decision to throw their baby buggy in a river, Mm. which is a bad choice but wouldn't have had that dilemma if not for other decisions made before theirs. So I feel like as the sort of classic, like the father, the patriarch who must be destroyed to set a populace free, like Max Shrek Mm. is definitely it. And it's also this wonderful villain role because it's played by Christopher Walken, who of course is villainous, but is very campy a lot of the time and definitely in this. And he has the amazing line, why is... Bruce Wayne dressed like Batman. That's not exactly it. But like, what is special about that portrayal? It's definitely very weird. I don't know. Because it's Christopher Walken being very Christopher Walken as our most Christopher Walken roles. <laughs> Except the dead zone, weirdly enough. <laughs> so are you are you positing that he is the dad in uh, is there a daddy or are you positing that he is the daddy? Oh, I'm positing that he's the daddy. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. That's great. I don't know. That's such a great question. Carolyn walked in and saw the movie for like 10 minutes and said of Christopher Walken that this is the best he's ever looked in any movie. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Is he blonde in this? I can't even remember. He's almost like Doc Brown. Right. I don't remember specifics. I guess remember like these huge eyeballs. They found... A young actor who looks and sounds exactly like him to play Chip Shrek. (laughs) (laughs) Found a real buff daddy to play young Shrek. Oh, yeah. Outside of the obvious being Catwoman for so many obvious reasons. Why should we be the daddy? Yeah, I, I don't see many evident daddy alternatives, but Catwoman for sure. Catwoman has... Mm, I'd say the best puns in the movie. She is very good at just like we like in movies, uh, explaining out loud why things are fucked up, like explaining that these security guards are confusing their guns for their penises. And uh, she looks the best head to toe in latex next to the titular character in the movie whose whole thing is being covered in latex she looks the best and not just from a sexualized place i mean i just think that they went all out on uh how beautifully shiny she is in this movie she's so shiny i mean she has this kind of edward scissorhands quality because this whole thing is stitched together out of little pieces i love that her cat suit is disintegrating as the movie progresses you can mm. see she's busting all these seams yes which just so she's like so powerful and so vulnerable like a cat 
Yes. And you, I mean, imagine there must have been someone on set whose role it was to spray and wipe her down on a regular basis. Right. Just the fingerprint scenario alone. Yeah, it's like the Vader helmet. Like that thing gets smeared so easily. Exactly. I also love, I feel like Batman had to have felt, I know that his little bat ears have a function. I forget what, but I know that they do stuff. Or maybe I'm wrong and they don't. I feel like that's something someone told me. In some movie, I think that they've been related to sonar. Yeah, like I'm sure that in the various iterations, they've had uh, all kinds of, of functions or at least one consistent one. But I also feel like he just likes having ears. And he's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a bat if I didn't have ears. I have to have ears. And I like to think that when Batman sees Catwoman... He's like, oh, you have ears, too. That's pretty cool. Like, maybe this is a friend for me. She has no reason for having those ears. Obviously, she needs them because she's a cat. If she didn't have ears, she'd just be a shiny lady. <laughs> yeah, well, well, Batman aesthetically needs ears because outside of the cape, without ears, he just looks like a straight-up phallus. <laughs> What would it be like if Batman was as shiny as Catwoman? Like, how would we feel? (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Why Our Dads. That's it for our show. That is it for Batman Returns. Uh, Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the show and for her wonderful rendition of Blue Christmas. It is gorgeous. She uh, she does great things. We're so lucky to have her making the show. Carolyn has a EP called Tear Things Apart. If you want to listen to more of her music, I highly suggest you do so. I think uh, if you like the music in the show, you will like Carolyn's EP a whole, whole lot. Uh, what else should I be telling you? Oh, we are talking about moonstruck next week with madame clairvoyant if you are a celebrator of christmas uh we hope that you have a good one and that you get through it (laughs) you get through it unscathed if you celebrated anything else this month we hope that your celebration was fantastic and if you are not a celebrator of these things you just uh it's just cold or weird or the end of the year we see and appreciate and feel you that's it for wired ads for this week we have one more until we are able to call it 2021. We look forward to getting to that place and we look forward to getting there with you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. As always, we appreciate you.